Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 will continue in our study of the believer's armor, specifically today, donning the belt of truth. While you're turning there, I want to be a little bit personal at the beginning in, in ways that I'm typically not, but I, uh, the rhythm of a preacher's life is, is um, pretty predictable every week. And this week, I, I typically, am, most of my study for a sermon is done on Thursday because I have to have my my outline in and my um, uh, title in for the bulletin. It's a good self-imposed uh, accountability. Uh, but I still am working on it Friday and Saturday and even Sunday morning. And um, I was still... Here's the, here's the truth about editing. When you edit yourself, you always end up adding something. When someone edits you, they always end up taking something out. And so the more I look at it, it, it things expand, the, the sermon does. So yesterday I was, I was uh, wrestling with it and uh, added, between yesterday and this morning, I got up about, about 3.30 and was looking at it again. And by the end of closing my computer and coming into the church, I got here about 5.45, it was, I had added about seven, seven and a half pages to the sermon. Oh no, don't laugh yet. Um, because I got here, opened up my computer to transfer it to my iPad where I do my final markup, and everything I had done yesterday and today was gone. Before you computer friends come and tell me, I did undo, undo, undo about 30 times until it stopped undoing and I couldn't find it. I, I don't know what happened. But I will tell you this. I had this suspicion that we're studying about the devil. And it's not beyond him to say, let's just kind of erase those thoughts. So I don't know for sure if it was, but I'm blaming the devil for the, <laughs> for the computer malfunction. So the good news is I got in this morning and I had most of my notes and was able to reconstruct, I think, most of it. Um, and I, I'm going to assume that whatever we don't recover, the Lord didn't want us to say, so we'll just leave, leave it there. John, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's final paragraph let me read it for you. It's on the believer's armor, his fight, her fight with the devil and demons. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes or methods of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. This paragraph describes a cosmic 
spiritual battle in which every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, every treasurer of the gospel is engaged. It's a spiritual fight with Satan and demons. This paragraph also instructs us on how to be faithful and listen, successful, winning in this real, though immaterial, dangerous and fierce war with the devil. Let's begin by asking a simple question. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel, if Jesus is your savior and your master, your Lord, do you have a battle plan for fighting and defending against the onslaught of your ancient foe? Do you know how to fight him? Do you have a plan? The number of approaches to this plan is as varied as it is confusing. Some have taken the tactic to talk to these evil angels, even devil him, the devil himself, to cast them out of things, out of people, out of inanimate objects, out of territories, or maybe to tie him up, to bind the devil by talking to him. Or maybe it's as simple as just singing a song to shut the door and keep out the devil. To shut the door and keep the devil where? In the night. Or I'm saying the, Aaron, I should be shooting, shut the door and keep out the devil. And I love this. Here's the, here's the great strategy. You ready for a drum roll? Light the candle. Everything's all right. He says it twice. Light the candle. Everything is all right. Don't you wish it were that easy? Very cute song, but what in the world does that mean? In the Gospel of John, Jesus provides a piercing assessment of our ancient foe, of the devil, and his attack on himself. The religious leaders were attacking him, and when confronting these false religious leaders who were attacking him, he talks to them and he says, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44 says. At his core, the devil is a liar. And mark this, he is a perpetual liar he is an expert liar. He is a persistent liar. He is an experienced liar. He's a very good liar. And the devil's lies are really easily believed. We just read in 2 Thessalonians in our scripture reading this morning something interesting talking about that future time of tribulation, great tribulation. And Paul tells the Thessalonians some insights about the devil. It says he comes with power and signs and false wonders, that he hates the truth, that the deluding influence that God will allow is people will believe what is false. It's the same now. Lying to the mind. And lying to the heart is the primary aim of the evil forces that are against you and me. 
In fact, verse 12, though, tells us something about this fight. It, it, it tells us that it happens in the heavenlies or heavenly places. Also in the same verse, it tells us it's not, this fight is not against flesh and blood. So it's not in the material world, it's in the mental world, the mind. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan is after your thinking, after your mind to protect your mind at all costs. Now, Paul uses an illustration from the real world, the material, tangible world, to explain the defenses a believer must put on in order to protect himself against the devil's attacks. And he is attacking. You don't have to wonder if you're in a fight. You woke up this morning in the fight. As a believer, he is after you. He wants to distract you, deceive you, delude you. Remember, Paul is writing from house arrest. He's imprisoned at least two different times in Rome. And one of the primary times, the first times, this is house arrest. He's, he's able to kind of come and go under guard. There was a Roman guard stationed there at his house, probably sometimes inside the house, sometimes outside the house. Later, he'll be in that Mamertine prison in that pit that some of us saw on our, our church history tour, a much more ravaging situation there. Here it's, he's got relative freedom, but he is guarded by a Roman centurion, a Roman guard. He describes himself in chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner of the Lord. We talked about that, that even though he was a prisoner of Rome, there was a guard there looking over him. He still saw that underneath the providential oversight of God. And he's still writing from house arrest, no doubt being guarded by this Roman soldier or a series of Roman soldiers who would have been dressed in armor and he looks at them and says, that is a perfect illustration for what I want to write about. By the way, he speaks in these similar terms to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Very similar words as here in Ephesians 6. So the paragraph before us, this final instructive paragraph in Ephesians is an instruction for us as believers to put on armor to be ready for the onslaught of Satan and demons' attacks. Should be read with Isaiah's description of an armor-clad child of God in Isaiah 11, 4 and 5 and Isaiah 59, 17. We'll cycle back to those in the coming studies. This is nothing new. In other words, the believers should be clad in armor in defense, defensive um, protection pieces so that he's not duped by the devil. Now let's talk about this, this first piece. This is all under the rubric of stand firm. It begins in verse 14 after in the end of verse 13 to say stand firm, stand firm therefore. We stand firm by having our defensive pieces on. We're ready for the attacks. And then he goes into the illustration of having girded your loins with truth out of a Isaiah 11, 5 to be specific. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a little bit of a description of what it is. The Roman soldiers always wore an external garment that was a tunic. It functioned as a protection against the wind and weather. It functioned as a warm piece and could be 
uh, traded for, uh, on the lighter linen to wool when it came to the colder climates. It was his outer garment. His primary clothing is what everybody saw. It was usually a large piece of rectangular material that either had holes cut for the arms or it just draped over and the arms were in the opening and a hole cut for your head and went over the top. It hung down to your ankles to keep your legs warm and also to keep your legs as clean as possible. The way they secured it was a thick leather belt that went around the tunic and you cinched it up. But remember, this was in a time before guns and cannons. The fighting ended up after spears and arrows were thrown. The fighting always came to hand-to-hand wrestling and fighting combat. So before a battle, a soldier would carefully pull the four corners. Imagine this. Loosen the belt, pull the front two corners and the back two corners of the tunic up underneath the belt and cinch it up made a kind of mini skirt or mini tunic so that his legs were free and he could run and roam freely. And Without it, you would trip over your skirt, literally. You can't fight effectively when you're tangled up in your own clothes. Have you ever... I know we have some hockey fans in our, in our body. Have you ever watched a hockey fight... One of the primary tactics when two hockey players go at it is to grab part of the jersey and pull it over your opponent's head. And then you can have your way. You want to keep that tight. One of the things that I've noticed since playing football as a kid and even watching old football films is how much tighter football uniforms and pads have become over recent years. Have you noticed that? I mean, I was watching a recent um, film, a uh, documentary about Walter Payton. I mean, his shirt was flopping in, in, the, in the breeze, and his, his pants were a little bit loose, and his shoulder pads were from, like, coast to coast. They were really big. It was just not very tight. And now... The pads in the uniform, the jersey and the pants, are, are intended to be so tight that they literally put double-sided tape on their shoulder pads so that their jersey will stick to it. And the point is, the least that the opponent has to grab, the better advantage you have. Similar here. Full disclosure, I wrestled in high school and college, and that was because it was the best sport where I could compete against someone my size. And uh, Kim has gone through old annuals and pictures of when I wrestled in my wrestling uniform or singlet, which she calls a onesie. It's not a onesie. It's not a onesie. Honey, it's not a onesie. And she says, wow, that's pretty skin tight. There's a reason for that. When you're wrestling someone, you don't want to give them any advantage of being able to grab your clothing. This is the issue here with the girding your loins, making your, your legs uh, uh, ambulatory so that they're not tripped up by your tunic. Paul understands well that the ability to move around and fight effectively is dependent on this belt and its use properly. 
No Roman soldier would go into hand-to-hand combat without girding his loins, which became a metaphor in the ancient Near East for being ready. Being ready. Paul uses, Peter uses it as well. It's the first time that, let me say it this way, the first piece of armor that, that Paul uses is significant and it's almost a summary of all the others. It's significant that the first thing a soldier would do when he was going into battle after having put the armor on was to prepare himself by making him, himself ready to move around that the very first thing in preparation is also Ill, in spiritual battle is illustrated by the attribute attached to this belt. It's the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Are you beginning to see a connection? If Satan is the father of lies, then the first thing we do to combat him is apply truth. That's not just insignificant. Satan's lies almost always have a kernel of truth. He comes as an angel of light. His primary tactic is to lie to us. And it makes sense why Paul would begin with this defense, knowing what is true so that we don't succumb to the lies of the devil. Think of how Paul prioritized knowing what is true as a cure or a defense for being anxious, being worried. Lloyd-Jones calls this being spiritually depressed. Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know this passage well. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious, worried for nothing. What a staggering command. Don't be worried about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything about prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your minds, there's the battlefield. And you say, well, that's a clever encouragement. How do I do that? Listen to verse 8, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, of good repute, any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, dwell on that. Think on that. Recognize what's false and what's true. Romans 1 We could spend a lot of time here, but let me just mention it. Romans 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is an interesting Greek word. Suppress means it's like having a suitcase that's overstepped and you're just sitting on top of it, pounding on it to suppress it. Get it to close. That's suppressing the truth in what? In unrighteousness. And he talks about natural revelation being evident within people so that we're out of excuse. Verse 22, professing to become wise, they become fools. Here's an important word. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Now listen to this, verse 25, Romans 1, 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchanged what was true of God for a lie. Well, where did those lies originate? John 8, 44. From the father of lies, the devil himself. A little footnote in Ephesians, Paul's already used the word truth five times. 113, 421, 424, 425, 59. His point is that to believe what is reliable and trustworthy from God's word is the aim of every Christian not to be not to succumb to that which is false, which, which comes from the devil. So if we can just have kind of a group counseling session with each other, whenever something comes up that bothers you, whenever something comes up that disturbs you, whenever something comes up that gives you anxiety, the first question I think we're bound to ask by wearing the belt of truth is, is what I'm thinking true? Is how I'm thinking true? I think you're going to be surprised as we unlock this a little bit further that it's all too easy to believe things that are not true. So let's kind of break this down into categories. Five categories. I tried to make this as short as possible and I couldn't make it any shorter than this. Five categories of satanic lies for which the belt of truth is a defense. If you can think of a shorter way to say that, let me know and I'll change it in the notes, okay? Five categories of satanic lies for which Wearing the belt of truth, the belt of truth itself, is a defense. If you are wearing the belt of truth, you will be able to defend yourself against these lies that Satan has told our culture, our government, and even our own hearts. Five categories of satanic lies for which the belt of truth is a defense. Now, if you are going to guess which category we're going to list first, my suspicion is you would have it nailed down. What's the first way that Satan lies to us? He lies about God himself. He lies about the nature and character and person of God. This is such a wicked and a devious and devastating strategy. Why? Because if Satan can get us to question God's character, to doubt God's nature, to be suspicious of God's heart and of God's motives, he's already won. Because then we're worshiping a wrong God. John MacArthur asserts, when a believer doubts God's goodness, love, power, grace, mercy, or sufficiency, he joins Satan in impugning God's truthfulness, end quote. He's right. Now, where does this come from? How are you easily listening to the whispers of the devil we find a great insight in, in how God actually confronts the, the children of Israel, the children of God in Psalm 51. This is one of the most significant lies of the devil and God comes right after their hearts on this. He's confronting the sin that was growing among his people and listen to what God says to the people. He says, here's your problem. You thought... You thought I, God, you thought I was just like you. Projection. 
God must feel what we feel. God must think what we think. God must assess how we assess. But Isaiah 55 says his ways are higher than ours. They're not like ours. Talking about God's sovereignty, we've come back to this quote many times. Horatius Bonner says, but listen to the last part. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart, end quote. You ever get suspicious of God's heart? Like that junior high devotional book, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? In other words, does he love me if my locker can't get open? Do you, have you, will you project our own sinful dispositions onto God's character as if he were like us? We can easily think of God differently than he really is. This is believing the devil's lies about God. For example, you can see him as way too soft on sin. He, he'll let you get away with anything. Or way too harsh on sin. He's going to throw you into hell for every sin that you've committed even after believing the gospel. One of the most important applications of wearing the belt of truth is to think about God truthfully according to his word. We were talking with our, our men in our um, theology for breakfast study on Wednesday that one of the primary aims of Bible reading is to understand and know the ways of God. What is God like? Moses says in Exodus 33, teach me to know your ways that I may come to know you. In other words, if I can see the ways of God in the past and God doesn't change, he's immutable, then I can with accuracy predict the ways of God in the present. We have a Bible to show us the ways of God. So we believe about what the Bible says about his nature, his nurture, what God says about himself. But the devil will constantly whisper to us things to believe about God that are untrue. A.W. Tozer has rightly said, famously quoted, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if that is true, and I believe him to be true when he says that, what does come into your mind when you think about God? And is it accurate? We all have misunderstandings about God. And the more we read his word, the more accurate our thoughts of him become. Yes, you caught me. This is the read your Bible more sermon. Of course, we read to know God, to know his character and his nature, his disposition. What makes him respond to our sin and righteousness? What makes him say, well done? What makes him say, repent? How much can you recognize lies that you might believe about the nature and person of God? Or are we on the other side of his admonition? You thought, God says, you thought I was just like you. Now, if you were to anticipate the second lie, categorical lie of the devil, what would you anticipate? You're right. Lies about God's word, lies about the Bible. This lie has been a favorite since 
our first parents, Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, the description of the creation. Genesis 2, a telescoped, microscopic detail of, of the creation of man. Then chapter 3. Then, then chapter 3, which begins like this, Genesis 3, 1. Then, excuse me, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field in which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's the first question ever posed in the Bible. And it's in the mouth of, God, uh, mouth of Satan himself about God's word. Questioning God's word. It's clarity. It's perspicuity. Asking the question, has God really said what you think you understand he said? And implies we know something about God's word, but do we know God's word accurately? This is why hermeneutics, principles of interpretation, understanding and valuing and applying and interpreting God's word is so critical. The most obvious lie Satan tells us is voiced in the mouth of liberals and unbelievers who doubt the truthfulness of God's word, the Bible, by questioning the supernatural accounts, the supernatural empowerment that the Bible supplies. Let me just throw some at you really quick regarding God's word. Satan lies about authorial authenticity. In other words, did the does the Bible, is the Bible really written by who it says it was written by? The first time I encountered this was I was taking a class on the King James Bible as literature in, um, in college, my freshman year. It was, it was a really sweet class, and I appreciated the professor, professor for so many things. But I remember him first, we were talking about the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and him saying, we know for certainty, we know with clarity, we know with power and conviction that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. It was by a series of writers, the J-E-P-D authors. The, um, and, and, and this was a conglomeration and a synthesis of, of them. That's why you have two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. That's why you have this and that and the other. That's why you, Moses records, his, uh, there's a record of Moses' own death in Deuteronomy, all of these things. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't know why, but it just, just doesn't sound right. Because it says Moses wrote it. So they would question whether the authors, whether Paul wrote it. Kim and I were on a, a tour in Turkey one time, and there was a, uh, a tour guide who we were at the tell of Colossae who said, you know, there's a city under there that we haven't unearthed yet, Colossae. And some people uh, believe that Paul might have written a letter to these people. And I said, well, I believe that. I, that I, that's what my Bible says. Also lies about the text's truthfulness. Closely related to that first lie is the challenge of higher criticism that questions the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. It says, we have so many copies of so many copies of so many copies, it can't be true. And we know it's true because we have so many copies of so many copies and so many copies, and they say the same thing. Lies about historical accuracy. This has been a big one where people say, well, the Bible can't be true because of this or that or the other historical observation. Then they find some archaeological find, and lo and behold, the Bible was right. Lies about supernatural, scientific plausibility. 
This is big. In the wake of the scientific advances of our generation, the supernatural accounts in the Bible are now judged by the scientific method. That's Satan saying, the Bible is not true. It says supernatural things. A man didn't walk on the water. An axe head didn't float in 2 Kings 6. And certainly a man wasn't risen risen from the dead. There's lies about religious pluralism. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Bible claims that there's only one way to God, and it's Jesus. Lies about social relevance. This is coming later to the battle. Ideals about feminism and homosexuality and transgenderism, which make our views of the Bible's views of those things seem out of date and irrelevant. Lies about moral accountability. Men will proceed from bad to worse, 2 Timothy 3.17 says, but Satan is constantly whispering into our culture and into our ears that sin is not as bad as we think it is. We'll come back to that. Lies on, I don't know what to call this, except he lies to us about condescending presentism. In other words, we know so much more than the writers of the Bible. They couldn't possibly be right, especially on men and women's roles and on, on the way marriage should function. All that leads us to what's called integrationism. And by integrationism, this is such a clever lie of the devil. He wants us to have a kernel of connection to the Bible so that we're deluded, but he adds things alongside the Bible to say they are equally as true and should be integrated with God's word. Like tradition, even from a Christian perspective, formalism or creedalism or retrievalism where the Bible is true and I can believe the Bible as long as a creed or a statement from church history says it is. We have kind of an informal um, tradition. <laughs> we all understand, well, we're not going to do it like that. We're not going to believe like that because we've always done it this way. That's our own internal tradition. Psychology, which purports to understand what your problems are and to have solutions for it, which are independent of the power and work of God on the human heart to integrate those together. And the more we claim to believe the authenticity and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture and say we don't need anything else, we're seen as backwards, uninformed. Expect that. Sociology, different social constructs. As I said, the feminist movement, the sociological movement, the transgender movement has been whispered by Satan into governmental halls to legislate so that now we see that sin is legal and should be supported and encouraged. Nationalism is integrated into our Bible sometimes. I, I was really disappointed. Just this week, I was watching a newscast, and I don't remember the details except that someone was advertising a Bible that said, that contained in the first part of the Bible, the Constitution. And I just got sick at my stomach. Like, that doesn't belong in there. Politics. The greatest way, though, that we are whispered lies by the devil in our approach to God's Word, and we can believe his lies, is is integrating our intuition. 
which goes back to the first one, God himself. We think God is like us. We, this is the way I feel. This is the way I think about the Bible. So it must be true, even though it's not grounded in solid hermeneutical conclusions. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As I said, this is all introductory. We are going to flesh these things out, specifically these lies, in the rest of the armor. What else do you think he would lie about categorically? Lies about salvation. We're not going to say a whole lot about this because we're going to save it for a piece of armor that protects our thinking about saving called, salvation called the helmet of salvation. What does, helmet, what does a helmet protect? Your head. What does your head do? It's your mind. Just like us, they understood when, the, when people got head injuries that affected their thinking. Well, the helmet protects your thinking about what? The helmet of salvation. And we'll have a whole sermon about that. The lies Satan utters about salvation have the most eternally dangerous consequences, like the Roman Catholic doctrine that you must add works to Christ's righteousness to make it to heaven. And if you don't make it, you'll have a second chance in a place called purgatory afterwards. Also, that you can earn your salvation or you have to add works to salvation, to Christ's work. Or how about this one? How about this lie? You can lose your salvation my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27 says, I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. Look at this. Out of Jesus' hand. Listen to what he says next. My Father who is in heaven has given them to me. He's greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's security. Can we just say it? <laughs> if you could lose your salvation... You would. So would I. All of that goes into the blender, and we'll come back to this significantly when we study the helmet of salvation, with what I would call the satanic lie of enoughism. By enoughism, he can make you think, well, I don't pray enough, therefore I'm probably not saved. I don't obey enough, so I'm probably not saved. Saved. I don't fight sin enough. I don't give enough to the church. And here's the deal. You're, you're probably right. You don't pray enough, obey enough, fight sin enough, give enough. I, that's probably all true. But that has nothing to do with God's saving based on the righteousness and sacrifice of His Son for sinners. Only Christ's righteousness is enough to please the Father, and only Christ's death is enough to pay for our sin. That's the only place that the word enough should be applied. I'm looking forward to studying the helmet of salvation. We'll be look at some of his lies about our salvation, like you have to earn your salvation, you can lose your salvation, you can be a Christian and live any way you want. Even if it's contrary to Scripture. Or you're not doing enough to be really saved but more on that in the helmet of salvation. A fourth category, these are just big categories, is he lies about sin and morality. Number four, sin and morality. Lies about sin and morality. Satan wants you to believe that sin is not as serious as it is or that sin is not sin. Can we just pause for a second? We're going to be taking the Lord's table in a minute, but just think about this. How serious is sin to God? Sin is so serious to God that he didn't just wave his hand to forgive us. He didn't just make an edict from heaven to forgive us. 
without the shedding of blood, which is death, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins, the book of Leviticus tells us. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 9 tells us, is never enough to conquer sin. They had to do that every year. Sin is so serious that only the death of God's Son could pay the penalty of our offense and our sin against God. That's serious. He wants, Satan wants you to believe that good is bad, that bad is good, that right is wrong, that wrong is right. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. That's thinking God is like us. We are wise without God and with our own intuition. Satan also wants us to believe that sin is inconsequential. It's not that big a deal. And yet, Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, don't be deceived. There's Satan's lie. Don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he also will reap. For the one man sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Much more about this next week when we talk, the, talk about the breastplate of, what is it? Righteousness, which has something to do with dealing with unrighteousness. So just hold that thought till next week. Last lie I want to just briefly wade into because the other pieces of armor will deal with this directly. Lies about you. Lies about self. Satan lies to you regularly about you. And some of Satan's most heinous lies have to do with how we think of ourselves, with you and your understanding about yourself. Lies like this. You will not be happy unless you pursue your sinful desires. Or you can't be happy without enjoying the desires of the flesh and its sins of self-indulgence. Oh, John, John was so clear when he says in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Well, footnote, we know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air in this world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Those three categories. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who helped me with this, and it goes both ways with men and women. He said, men, this teaches us to always be careful of the gold, the glory, and the girls, or the guys. Be careful. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life. Satan tells us that those are ways we can be fulfilled and be happy. Those are ways we can understand ourselves. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, that's a lie. He lies to your heart telling you that you cannot change. He lies to you and says you're a victim of your past and you're trapped by it. 
God changes people when they believe the gospel. He changes us. And one of Satan's most vicious lies, even in my own heart, is seeing inclinations in my heart and saying, ah, it's just who I am, I can't change. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Kevin DeYoung writes, there is a war raging between good and evil in our world. And though we might prefer the conflict to be fought somewhere else, we don't get to pick the times in which we live. The front line battles, the front lines today are battles over sex and gender and identity. We must be ready for a fight precisely in these places. Don't underestimate the power of your opponent. The devil wants us to join him in his rebellion against God. In her recent book, I just picked up this week and began reading, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, Rosaria Butterfield identifies five common lies the devil tells our culture and the people are gladly believing. Lie number one, homosexuality is normal. She's right. Number two, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. She's right, and those are not the same thing. Lie number three, feminism is good for the world and for the church. Lie number four, transgenderism is normal. Lie number five, modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back, end quote. Boy, have I seen a, a shift in my short lifetime about what's considered modest. Ladies, this is for another time, but don't uncover what God intends to be covered. Pretty simple. Satan whispers to us lies about God, his word, salvation, sin, and self. And that's just introductory to the pieces of armor which talk about specific lies that he attacks us with for which these pieces are a defense. We don't need to speculate on what are the schemes or the methods of the devil because this, the, these armor pieces explain what they are by giving us a defense against them. Jesus said of himself that he is the truth in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth. Only Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Only Jesus' death and resurrection provide the basis of forgiveness for our sin. And if you come to the Lord Jesus in faith and humility, you'll discover that you will know the truth, John 8, 32, and the truth will set you free. Now, I've told you before that it's important to read Christian books, and, but books don't change your life. Paragraphs do. And you've got to usually read the whole book to find which paragraph is, is best for you. And I, I wish it was just people who write paragraphs instead of books. It would save me a lot of time. And just the right paragraph, that would help me. This is one of those... 
in his book, Spiritual Depression, that Martin Lloyd-Jones spends a lot of time saying that Satan is the father of lies and his primary way of lying is through your own intuition. The, the, way you, the things you tell yourself without God's word as a, as a guide. Listen to this, this paragraph. Lloyd-Jones says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression or anxiety struggle is, is in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical, he says? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Listen to this sentence. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake in the morning. You've not originated them. They start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Someone is talking. Who is talking to you? Then he, quotes, he goes to Psalm 42. Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man in Psalm 42 said this. He, instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Then he quotes Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? His soul has been repressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. The main Art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And he says, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, what God has pledged to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, defy other people, defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who is able, who is also the health of my countenance and my God, end quote. How many times have we talked about learning to talk to yourself by saying, what do I feel? What do I think? When you say, what do I know? That's the same thing as saying what's true. What do I believe? What does God say? Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, dwell on these things. What a fitting introduction to a moment at the Lord's table.